Thanks for tuning into this week's message. For more resources and information about Cedar Valley, please visit cvchurch.org. Uh, let me give you this for a question. You're going to have 10 seconds to discuss this with somebody around you. So I'll give you the question, then boom, just quick, quick, quick. You're going to come up with a quick, quick answer. Largest mammal in the world. Largest mammal in the world. 10 seconds, go. Three, two, one. Wow, time's up. Largest animal, mammal in the world is the whale. That's awkward because that's not really what I planned. So skip the whale. What is the second largest mammal on the planet? It is the elephant. Here's what's crazy about elephants. Did you know this? An adult male elephant can weigh up to 14,000 pounds. They're massive, 14,000 pounds. And that's why sometimes when we get really hungry, we say, I'm so hungry I could eat an elephant. And then you step back and you go, 14,000 pounds. Good. Really? But here's what's weird, and I know that these are numbers that are on the top of your head because you folks think about this stuff all the time. In America, we only, I think we lead the world. We're like number one in the world. In America, the average American eats, do you know these numbers, 327 pounds of meat every year. Yes, some of you are eating more, okay? <laughs> but if you ate 327 pounds of meat every year, like an elephant, it would take you 42 years to eat an elephant. And then you kind of go, actually, some of you said, well, I'm, I'm over 42. I've eaten maybe an elephant and a half. Maybe some of you are getting close to two elephants. It's totally doable. It's totally doable. But this is how, and this is why we say this. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. One bite at a time. You see this thing in front of you, and it seems like it's so massive, and you're like, how could I ever eat an elephant? And the answer is one bite at a time. And it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a phrase that's used to help us look at events in life that are so big. And we think about those events and we go, how could I ever do that? How could I ever do that? And we always say one bite at a time, one bite at a time. I think that life is oftentimes like that, where we look at life and these things are in front of us and they're so big and they're so massive. We'll never accomplish that, never accomplish it. One bite at a time. Okay, life in the Christian faith. If you're a follower of Jesus, we have this big mission. Go and, you know, Jesus said, go and make disciples. Go and, and sometimes the vision for us gets so big and daunting and overwhelming, it becomes this nebulous thing that's just out there. And we lose focus and we kind of, right? And, 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 and so what I would say to you is the way that the mission happens is really one bite at a time. And instead of just like the mission, what I would encourage you to do is think more about mission moments because the mission really happens in moments and we're in these moments regularly we're in these moments all the time we have a lot of opportunity in these missions and so really the question for you and I should be this how do I recognize a mission moment how will I know when I'm in one of these mission moments? I think we, we, we ought to be thinking about that. That's what we're going to see today in the book of Esther. We're digging back in to the book of Esther. Last week, we just started Esther. Today, we'll continue. So let me just give you a quick, 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 and then we'll stand up and read our scripture. But let me just give you quick highlights as to where we're at and what we saw in chapter 1. First thing we saw was this. Number one, you should just know this. The timeline, if you're, if you're visually, if you're looking at the timeline, it's about 480 B.C., 
That's about where we are in the book of Esther. We're about 480 B.C. Now, what's happened about 120 years prior to this, the nation of Israel was one, was one nation, but it was actually two kingdoms. The northern kingdom was called Israel. It was still called Israel. The southern kingdom was still part of Israel, but the southern kingdom had a different name. It was called Judah. The king of Judah at this time, about 120 years prior to our book of Esther, is a king named Jehoiakim. He became very wicked and evil, and he was leading the Israelites in a very wicked direction, and God had warned them, and so God said, okay, Here's your punishment. This is what I'm doing. You all are going to be taken captive by the Babylonians. King Nebuchadnezzar was the, was the king of Babylon. And they came and they took those people from Judah, the southern kingdom of the nation of Israel, and they took them out and they took them to Babylon. Okay, pretty soon Babylon was attacked by the, the Persian, the Medo-Persian Empire, and that was King Cyrus. King Cyrus attacked King Nebuchadnezzar. Now the largest empire on the planet is the Medo-Persian, just the Persian Empire. After King Cyrus came King Darius. After King Darius came King Xerxes. And that's where we're at now. We're with King Xerxes. Now we learned a couple things real, real quick in, in chapter one. We learned this. We learned that Xerxes was a king. We learned that his queen was Vashti. And for very sick and weird reasons, Vashti was thrown off the throne. And now the king is looking for a new queen. There happens to be a man living in the kingdom that time, a Jewish man. He's not Persian. He's Jewish. His name was Mordecai. Mordecai has a young cousin named Esther. We're told that she's very beautiful and she's very lovely. And Esther now, she's a Jew and no one knows it. No one knows that she's a Jew. And she becomes the queen. So we have King Xerxes, we have Mordecai, we have his young cousin Esther, and he raised her as his own child because her mother died and her father died. They're living as captives in the Persian Empire. Got it? Okay, now turn your Bibles. Long introduction. Esther chapter 3, Esther chapter 3, and when you get it, if you just stand to your feet. If you're new, if you're newer around here, maybe you didn't know this, we always stand when we read our primary text. So just so you know, we won't be up down in the whole rest of the morning. But we do it now, and this says to us, this reminds us, it's not right or wrong to do this, we just do it, it's our own tradition, and it basically just reminds us, oh yeah, this is God speaking, that's why we stand, this is God, we're honoring God. It says this, and I'm going to start this in chapter 3, and I'm starting in verse 8, and it says this, then Haman approached King Xerxes and said, there's a certain race of people scattered throughout all the provinces of your empire who keep themselves separate from everyone else. Their laws are different from those of any other people, and they refuse to obey the laws of the king. So it's not in the king's interest to let them live. If it please the king, issue a decree that they be destroyed. And I will give 10,000 large sacks of silver to the government administrators to be deposited in the royal treasury. The king agreed confirming his decision by removing his signet ring from his finger and giving it to Haman, summoned Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. The king said, the money and the people are both yours to do as you see fit. So on April 17, the king's secretaries were summoned and a decree was written exactly as Haman dictated. It was sent to the king's highest officers the governors of their respective provinces and the nobles of each province in their own script and language. The decree was written in the name of King Xerxes and sealed with the king's signet ring. Dispatches were sent by swift messengers into all the provinces of the empire, giving the order that all Jews 
young and old, including women and children, must be killed, slaughtered, and annihilated on a single day. This was scheduled to happen on March 7th of the next year. The property of the Jews would then be given to those who killed them. A copy of this decree was to be issued as law in every province and proclaimed to all people so that they would be ready to do their duty on the appointed day. At the king's command, the decree went out by swift messengers, and it was also proclaimed in the fortress of Susa. Then the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa fell into confusion. Let's pray. God, we're grateful for your holy word. We thank you for it. And Lord, we've come to worship you today and to meet with you. And we're asking now, we're humbly asking, God, would you speak to us? Holy Spirit, would you give us understanding to your word, to this ancient text? Would you give us understanding and speak to our lives today in the culture that we're living? Speak to us, oh God, in a way that draws us to you. And I'm praying, Holy Spirit, that you would be our teacher this morning, that you would open eyes and reveal more of the Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You folks can have a seat. And so keep your text open if you had it open, because we're going to see, what does this mean? And, and we're going to see this again. I'll remind you this. How do we recognize when we're in a mission moment? The overall mission sometimes is too daunting. It's too big. How do we break that down one bite at a time? And so how do we know when we're in one of those mission moments? I'm telling you, this happens all the time. We're just not paying attention, is my contention. I, maybe I only speak for myself. But here's your text now. The text says this in verse 1 of chapter 3. Sometime later, now just so you know this, sometimes we sit and we read the Bible, and we go, oh, this happened, and then this happened. And we think that everything is, is, is condensed like this. Sometime later, we're about nine years after the first chapter of Esther. It's now almost nine years later. Sometime later, King Xerxes, we said he was the king, he promoted, now get ready for this, he promotes Haman... Son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, if I had a Bible open right now on my page, I would underline son, uh, that he's an Agagite. I would, I, that's, that's crucial to our text. You're going to need to know that. And the king is promoting him over all the other nobles, making him the most powerful official in the empire. Now, he's not the king, but he's the most powerful official under the king. In essence, uh, Haman now is number two. Now, here's what's really weird, and understand how biblical writers wrote. They oftentimes juxtapose things so they would stand out to you. When we read the scripture, we go, chapter one, and then we put our Bible away, and we leave it, hope maybe, maybe the next day, but maybe it's longer, and then we pick up chapter two, and we start at chapter two, two and we forget about what happened in chapter one. So you need to know this, that in chapter one, what we found out was that right at the end of chapter one, Mordecai, remember Mordecai, he's Jewish, but he's kind of in the right circle, like he, he hangs around the circle of power, and he's standing there, and he hears two men plotting against the king. They're going to kill the king. They're going to kill the king. And this is what we're told at the end of chapter 2. Mordecai found out about the plot. Oh, he finds out about the plot, and he tells Queen Esther, remember, his little cousin that he's raised in his home, and he tells the queen, who in turn then reports it to the king, and she gives credit to Mordecai. She wasn't saying, hey, this is going to happen, and I found out about it. She said, oh, this is what's going to happen, and Mordecai found out about it, and Mordecai told me. And she says, all this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. If I were you, I would underline that, because in about a week or two, we're going to come back, and you're going to find out why that was so important that it's recorded in the annals. But here's what happens. Mordecai finds out about it. Mordecai reports it to the queen. The queen gives Mordecai all the cre pre uh, credit, and now the king's life is saved. 
Okay, now juxtapose that to what we just read in verse 1. Sometime later, King Xerxes promoted Haman. Now that feels very weird because the reality is we're not told that he's done anything at this point for Mordecai. Well, Mordecai was the guy who just saved the king's life and nothing's done. And Haman gets promoted and he's now the second in command. He's the most powerful official in the empire. Okay, now the text goes on. It says, all the king's officials would bow down before Haman. He's second command. He's the second most powerful man next to the king. They would all bow down before Haman to show him respect, respect, respect whenever he passed by. For so the king had commanded. You can imagine some high-ranking officials, especially in a culture of that type. A guy walks by and he's a high-ranking official. He's second only under the king. He walks by. Everybody bows down. Everybody bows down. Oh, wait a minute. But. But Mordecai refused to bow down or show him respect. Now, there's a lot of speculation, and there's a lot of questioning on why would Mordecai not bow down. The answer is, yeah, we don't know. We don't know. But we can speculate. So I'll give you my speculation. There's a lot of speculation out there. One is that he was jealous. In other words, I'm the guy who just saved the king's hide. I'm the guy, and you got promoted. That's a possibility, just so you know. That's very possible. But the reality is... The rest of what we read about Mordecai, you're only going to read about Mordecai here in this book. I'm not sure it's consistent. That's a possibility. It could be. I don't, you know, I don't really know the answer. Second thing is this. He's a Jew, and the Jew is going to say, no, I worship God of heaven. I'm not bowing to any people, and I don't bow to any idols. And that's a distinct possibility. However, we see other examples in the Old Testament where Jews bowed out of respect just to other people, just to say, I respect you. Most likely, in my opinion, so I better state it that way, most likely, in my opinion, what I believe is I believe it's very likely because of who Haman was. Now, we were already told that he was an Agagite. Agagites were descendants of King Agag. This is very important. Agag was an Amalekite. Now, you may not know anything about that, but it's like me saying, that dude was a Packer fan. Everybody, come on. You hear what I'm saying? It's like that. So get a load of this. So the Israelites were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And then finally God sends Moses, right? And Moses starts going to Pharaoh and saying, you got to let my people go. And Pharaoh saying, I'm not going to do it. Eventually, they send them out. They send them out of the country. And the Israelites all go out. And they wander in the desert for 40 years, right? Some of you know the story. First they cross the Red Sea. And then they wander in the desert for 40 years. The Amalekites hang out at the back of the pack. Like, you got to remember this. It's not like, hey, there's 200 people. There are 2 million Israelites. There are 2 million Israelites, roughly, who leave Egypt. And they're wandering through the desert. You can imagine how they kind of get strung out. The Amalekites would hang out at the back of the pack. And they're picking off the elderly and the weak and the the sick. Like, they're picking them off. And they're taking their stuff. Okay, the Jews hate the Amalekites. The Amalekites have have hated the, the Jews forever. And so the reality is, I think the speculation is this, that Haman, uh, that uh, Mordecai says, Haman is an Agagite. There's not a chance I'm bound to respect an Agagite. Not an Amalekite. I'm not bowing to him, right? So all the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by because the king had commanded. But Mordecai refused to bow down or show him respect. Well, how do you think that makes Haman feel? Well, the scripture goes on and said, when Haman saw that Mordecai wouldn't bow down or show him respect, he was filled with rage. This guy is royal, and now he's royal ticked. He's upset. He's, he's very angry because everybody bows down to me. Because I, you'll find this out about Haman the more that we read. Haman, like I think Haman got his name because 
his parents, like he was even this way as a child, where he was just pointing to people and goes, amen, amen, like, like look at me, look at me. I think that's what he did. I think that's how he got his name. Haman is always pointing himself out. He's always trying to declare to people how awesome he is. And so a guy like that with an ego like that, and you don't bow to him, he is ticked. Well, then we see this, that he learned, oh, he learned about Mordecai's nationality. So now Mordecai knows that he's an Amalekite, a descendant of King Agag, and now Haman knows that Mordecai is a Jew. See what's happening. And so because of that, it says he decides that it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. He's filled with rage, and he's ticked, and he's angry at Mordecai. That is not enough. It's not enough that something bad would happen to Mordecai. The writer goes on and said, instead, he looks for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire. The entire empire, like all of them, all Jews have got to be destroyed. Then we read this. It goes on. It says, so in the month of April, during the 12th year of King Xerxes' reign, lots were cast in Haman's presence. Now, just so you know this, these lots, right, are, it's, it's almost like a, a dice. It's, it's interesting. We don't really have an understanding of this in our culture. But lots are what they use sometimes to make decisions, these lots. Now, a lot is called a pur. And if you put I-M on the end of it, that makes it plural. So now I have purim. Right? This is one of the largest Jewish holidays to this day. It's one of the reasons I think that the, that the rabbis, even though this book doesn't mention God or the presence of God, it doesn't explicitly state it, I believe it's one of the reasons that the rabbis put this book in the Tanakh, in their original Jewish uh, literature, because it brings out the, the, the festival of Purim. There are big festivals on the Jewish calendar, maybe not in this order, but Rosh Hashanah is like the celebration of creation, really the new year. Then Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement. It's a big deal. Yom Kippur is a big day. And the third one is the Festival of Purim. Because it celebrates, and you'll find this out, it celebrates when all the Jews were going to be wiped out and God spared them all. And so they celebrate. All Jews in the Persian Empire were going to be wiped out. And so now it says this, that dispatches were sent by swift messengers into all the provinces of the empire, giving the order that all Jews, young and old, even the women, can you even imagine this? Even the women and the children must be killed, slaughtered, and annihilated on a single day. Okay, now here's the thing. We were talking about this. How do I recognize when I'm in the middle of a mission moment? And so if I were you, I'd be taking note of this. Whether you write down, put it in your phone, but you've got to be thinking about this. Because I think the problem is we're in mission moments all the time. I think the mission is so big, it becomes so nebulous, it becomes so abstract. We're in mission moments all the time, and we're talking about how do you recognize it. The number one sign that you very well may be in a mission moment is there's a problem. There's a problem. Now, in our culture, we, we, I don't know why this is. and I, Maybe you can explain this. I don't know. In our culture now, we celebrate victimhood. Anybody? Have you noticed this? We celebrate being a victim, and I'm sorry because I don't have children, so I'll just give you that disclaimer. But we are teaching our children to celebrate being a victim. It's the weirdest thing to me. We're all looking for ways to be a victim. And I'm saying where there's a problem, instead of celebrating, hey, this is my chance, I can be a victim, would we start doing this? Uh-oh, this could be an opportunity. When there's a big problem out there, now here's the deal. It may be your problem. It may not be your problem. But it's still an opportunity. This is an opportunity. This could be a mission moment. Stop thinking victim. Stop thinking victimhood. Start thinking like the victorious. This is an opportunity. This could be a mission moment right now. Like that's the way we got to start thinking. 
So the number one thing is look for a problem. And when there's a problem, start thinking, this, this may be it. I may be in the middle of a mission moment. Again, it might be your problem. Maybe you lost your job. Maybe you don't have enough money. Maybe you don't have food. Maybe there's a relationship. Maybe it's something like that. It may be your neighbor's problem. It may be the problem of somebody that you work with. They, they're they're going to have a tough time. They're going through some kind of crisis. It might be the problem of a classmate, somebody that you're in class with every day, somebody you play sports with at school, somebody you're in some activity with school, maybe you're in the choir with that person, and it's their problem. This very well could be a mission moment. Followers of Jesus, we better start thinking like this. we got to stop being victims, we got to stop going on the defense, and we got to start thinking offensively. Some of you are already offensive. Not in that way. I didn't mean in that way. But I mean, like we need to, like, we need to go on the offense here. Right? So the first sign is there's a problem. But the second thing is this. It may be very close by. It's usually very close by. When there's a mission moment, it may be very close by. Now let me just distinguish this. Some of you, we just met with some folks uh, yesterday, Kim and I did, and they're, they're thinking missionary. They're thinking missionary. And so the mission moment, God may be calling you and sending you. Right? But the vast majority, and we celebrate that, by the way. We celebrate people who will give up everything and go be missionaries, foreign missionaries. But the vast majority of you aren't probably going to be doing that. I don't believe God's called everybody to do that. And so your mission moment is usually close by. It may be your next-door neighbor, and you get to step into their problem. It might be another family member, and you get to step into that problem. That's a mission moment for you. It might be a coworker. You're, it's somebody you're going to be close by. You're going to know them. You're going to have a relationship with them. Or you may not know them, but all of a sudden, boom, God just brought you into proximity with them. Right? Watch this. Chapter 4, then, it says this. When Mordecai learned about all that had been done, when he learned about the decree, and he learns that all the Jews are going to have to be wiped out, and I don't know at this stage if Mordecai has any sense of responsibility, like maybe it's me, maybe it's because I wouldn't bow down to Haman. I don't have any idea if Mordecai knows that. But when he learns about it, you can imagine, he tears his clothes, he puts on a burlap night. What's he doing? He's mourning. This is Jewish mourning, man. He puts on burlap, he rips his shirt instantly. All my people are going to be wiped out. It's a decree of the king. It's the law now. We're all going to be slaughtered, right? And he puts on burlap and ashes. And he went into the city, crying with a loud bitter way. He goes into the city. He goes into the city from his home. He goes, and he's just wailing. He's just screaming. He's just yelling. And then it says this. He went, this is important, as far as the city gate, as, as, as the gate of the palace, rather. And the reason he didn't go any further is because no one was allowed to enter the place, the palace gate, while they were wearing clothes of mourning, the burlap and stuff. But he goes as far as the gate. Okay, now stop. Think about this. Mission moments are always close at hand. They're almost always close by. You get to the palace gate, you're close to the palace. All right. Who lives in the palace? Well, we know the king does. I wasn't thinking so much of the king. There's somebody else who lives in the palace. She happens to be the queen. Oh, snap. She happens to be a Jew. She happens to be the very sister of Mordecai. That's right. Esther is now in the palace. He goes as far as the gate. He's now in proximity. In fact, there were people that heard him wailing. And Esther says, go out and find out. Go out and find out. Why is Mordecai wailing? Why is he screaming and yelling like that? Like, like what's he up to? And they go back and they tell Esther. And she's like, oh, you're kidding me. I, I don't know what I'm going to do about that. I don't, know what I, I don't know what I'll do about that. And she goes back and she tells Mordecai, and here's the law of that day. Like, she can't just go see the king. She can't, you're not allowed to do that. You can just, even if you're the queen, you can't just walk in and start talking to the king. In fact, if you walk in and start talking to the king, and the king didn't invite you in, the king doesn't really want to talk to you, doesn't matter who you are, guess what happens? You get killed. Like, that's what happens. 
And Queen Esther knows that. She knows that she can't just walk in. And so she sends a message then back to Mordecai. Yeah, and she's, oh, I'm sorry. Let, let, me, let me just point this out because I do think this is relevant. And I think you need to be aware of this. The Great Commission. Remember this? Jesus was here on the earth for, 30 day, for 33 years. And then he's crucified. And he rises from the dead. And he walks the earth for another 40 days. Then after 40 days, he's going to ascend back into heaven. Right? But before he ascends to heaven, famous last words, he gives a great commission. And you should be aware of this. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. A lot of you have heard this before. But what we miss because of the language barrier is the verb tense here. This word go, the verb tense really means this, as you are going. And so we think foreign missions, awesome, go. But everybody else, you're not off the hook. What it really says is, hey, as you're going, as you're going about your business, as you're going to work, as you're tooling around in the neighborhood, as you're going to school, as you're at the market, as you're pumping gas, as you're, you just run into your neighbor, that's where the mission takes place. For most of us, it's not going to a foreign land. For some it is, praise God. But for most of us, it's going about our business, going about our business, going about our business. Okay, so now the messenger has been to, Esther, she finds out about it. She sends word back to Mordecai, and she says, she's going to talk about, uh, it says, Mordecai sent this reply then back to Esther. He says this, hey, don't think for a moment, don't think for a moment that you're going to escape this. Don't think for a moment, like, you're not going to escape this. It's here, it's near, it's by you, right? And he says, because you're in the palace, you're going to escape when all those Jews are killed. Just because you're in the palace, if we're all killed, you're killed. You're, 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 there's no possible way you're going to escape this. He says, if you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. Now, just that statement alone, what does that tell you about Mordecai? This is a man of great faith. He's saying, Esther, if you don't do it, somebody's going to, because God is going to deliver us. He's very clear about that. God is going to deliver us. And then he says this. Who knows if perhaps you were made. Maybe you were made. for Like this is the way you were made. Listen, the third sign. The third sign. Because the first sign of a mission moment is there's a problem. The second sign of a mission moment is it's usually close by. But the third sign of a mission moment, the third sign is it usually fits how you were made. It usually is how you're made. You're gifted that way. You're talented that way. You, you, you're, you're wired that way. Now, you could be made that way in a position. Like Esther had the position. God made her that way. Who knows if, if maybe you were made that way, he's going to say to her. You could be made that way. Right? Maybe you're made with certain gifts. Look, maybe you're made and you have a car. Like, you have enough money, you have a car. Do you know that sometimes the car is the answer to a mission moment? Maybe somebody desperately needs a ride. They need a ride somewhere. Guess what? You're right there. You know them. You know they're in desperate need. You, you can minister to them. That's a mission moment. Who knows where that could go? Maybe your mission moment is that you, God's blessed you and you've got money. And you don't have to have a million dollars. Maybe you've got an extra 50 bucks, and sometimes that extra 50 bucks is the mission moment. Maybe that speaks to someone. Maybe it ministers to them. I mean, I mean maybe that's that. Maybe you were made that way by God's put you in a position and you're the boss. Maybe the position you, you, you have is you have the position of a neighbor and you, you, you're close. You have cl close proximity to that person. You were made their neighbor. You were made their friend. You were made their employer. Maybe it's the way you were made in terms of spiritual gifts. 
Maybe it's the way that you were made in terms of the spiritual gifting that God has given you. It's the way that God's wired you. If you've surrendered your life to Jesus and you've made him Savior and Lord of your life, the Bible tells us that the moment you do that, the Holy Spirit comes into you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is speaking to the church at Corinth. And he's speaking to them specifically about their gifts, about their spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it says this. There are different kinds of spiritual gifts. But the same spirit is also, we all have different gifts. We all have different gifts. In fact, in that same passage, then Paul goes on and he says, there are different kinds of service, but we serve the same Lord. God works in different ways. We all have different spiritual gifts. You all, followers of Jesus, if the Holy Spirit lives in you, you have a spiritual gift. And those gifts are sometimes for the mission moment that God is placing you in. And the problem with spiritual gifts is, first of all, number one, many of us don't know our spiritual giftings. We don't know. If you don't know your spiritual gifts, here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. Go to next step three. If you don't want to go to the rest of them, just go to next step three. You're not going to walk out of there, oh, I absolutely know what my spiritual gift is. It's a journey. If I was y'all's age and I was a student, which basically I am, we're basically the same age. If I was y'all's age, I would go and I would start learning, what are my spiritual giftings? How has God wired me? I would want to start knowing that at an early age. Because it's a process, and it develops over time, over time, and over time. So one of the number one problems about spiritual gifts is a lot of you have really no clue. Can I just tell you this? When you find, and many of you will attest to this, when you find your spiritual gift, and you operate in that gift, you are jacked. Like, you, you, you enjoy that. It's fulfilling to you. Some of you have the gift of generosity. And when you practice your gift of generosity, man, it lights you up. Some of you have the gift of helps. My wife has a gift of service and of helps. When she gets to do that, it lights her up. She enjoys it, right? Some of you have the gift of teaching. Now, here's the other problem with gifts is that we spend too much time desiring a gift we don't have. People will say this to me all the time. Oh, I wish I could teach like you. I wish I could. Let me, let me, let me just clue you in on something. I don't have any other gifts. I got zero. You can ask Carmen. Carmen's my admin. She will tell you. She, you probably say this to everyone. That dude can't organize a one-car parade. She would just tell you that. He can't organize anything. He has zero administrative abilities. If you talk to my wife and you ask my wife, she's like, he doesn't have a clue about details. He's oblivious. He doesn't know that details exist. I'm like, I'm flying up here, and she's down here taking care of all the mess. You know what I mean? And we spend way too much time desiring gifts that we just don't have. Stop desiring other gifts. Start figuring out what the gift that you have is from God. Start working and operating in that gift and then start enjoying it. You will feel fulfillment like never before operating your own gift. So here's how we know that we might be in a mission moment. Number one, there's going to be a problem. If you see a problem, start thinking opportunity. Stop playing victims. Start thinking opportunity. Number two, it's usually close by. It's usually close by. Either the person or the situation, you're in close proximity to it. You usually are in close proximity to it, like where you could do something. Number three, it usually fits the way you were made. Oh, I have the gift for that. I, 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 I can do something about it. I have that gift. I have that gift. Right? And then number four, you should know this. Mission moments usually take courage. It's usually going to take some courage. Like, you just need to be prepared for that. Esther... She sends this message back to Mordecai, and she says, look, do this. Go back to, and gather all the Jews. Get them all together. All the Jews of Susa. Susa is the fortress. That's where the palace is. 
go back there and fast for me. Now, this is very interesting to me because why did you fast? Well, you, pr- you fast because it's a ritual, but really one of the reasons you fast is because it frees up time because you're not buying food, you're not preparing food, you're not cooking food, you're not eating food, and you're not cleaning up. You know what you had all kind of extra time to do? Pray. The book of Esther never mentions even prayer. It doesn't. It's, I'm just telling you, it's such an obvious omission from the original writers that, that we, it's why we always say they're trying to tell us something when we don't see the presence of God, hear the presence of God, feel the presence of God. We talked about last week, he's still at work. So she just says, go and fast for me. That would have included prayer. And she says, don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. We're going to do the same. Then she says this, and then, though it's against the law, it's against the law, I will go in. I will go see the king. Now, when she knows that, she knows that if, if, the, king doesn't, if the king doesn't say, hey, I'm thrilled to see you, come on in, what the king can say is, I want her killed. The king can do that, even to the queen. And then she says this, if I must die, I must die. And sometimes we read that in literature and we read it in the scripture and we go, oh, that was a nice thing to say. And she meant it. She knew that this could cost her her life. She was aware of it. I'm just telling you, you need to be prepared. Now, what does courage look like for us? Well, sometimes courage looks like you got to say something. you got to speak up. Some of you got a friend that you've wanted to invite to church forever, and you're just like, I don't know how I would say it. I just don't know how I'd bring that up. What would I, what would I say? What would I do? And usually you just go, man, you know what I do? you got to come to church with me sometime. But it takes a little courage. Sometimes the courage that you require is a financial decision. We're going to do it. We're going to do that financially. That's going to be a shot for us. Man, that's going to take courage. Sometimes the courage is going to be you're going to speak to someone that you've just been warring with. And you're nervous when you're around them. You don't want to talk to them. And God's like, no, I'm calling you. This is a mission moment. Take courage. Speak up. I want you to go talk to them. Right? Some, some, sometimes the courage is saying nothing if you're like me. <laughs> like, or you just, words want to come out and you're like, you know? And it just takes courage to keep your lips together. Right? What, what would it look like for you? What would that look like for you? I always, one of my favorite books is the book of Joshua. And when I started here, we were talking about this, right? When I started here, I think the first book that I taught through was the book of Joshua. And if you remember this, in Joshua, Moses has been leading the people through the wilderness for 40 years. He's been their leader for 40 years, a great leader. It's interesting to me because in the culture, this last week we had two, in the culture we had two huge names retire from football, right? We had Bill Belichick, who many say is the greatest, sorry, say he's the greatest NFL coach of all time, right? And he retired. And then the other one was Nick Saban at Alabama. They say he's the greatest college football coach of all time. And people are like, wow. How would you like to follow him? How would you like to be after that? And I'm like, be after them. How would you like to follow Moses? How would you like to follow that leader? And so his heir apparent is now Joshua. And God is trying to raise him up and give him courage. And so in Joshua chapter 1, verse 9, it says this. This is my command. God speaking to Joshua. Be strong and be courageous. God is building him up, building him up, building up. Don't be afraid or discouraged. Now, is that just a pep talk? That just like, buck up. Come on, get excited. Come on, let's do this. Watch why God says. Here's why you can be courageous. Because the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And the church needs to hear that today too. We need to take courage. Not because 
just buck up, not because of that, but because the God of creation, the God of heaven, the Holy One that we worship before, that God is with you wherever you go. Man, if the Holy Spirit lives inside you, you walk the Holy Spirit into every room you ever walk into. The presence of God fills that place. And so you know what? Take courage. Take courage. God is with you. God is with you wherever you go. And so he said these things. Number one, look for a problem. Look for a problem. Might be your problem. Might be someone else's problem. Might be a friend's problem. Might be a problem that you don't know the po- that person. You don't know them. But it's going to be close by. When you see that, man, you've got to stop and think, oh, snap. This might be a mission moment right now. And then you look and you say, this fits how I was made. Either I have the resources for it, I have the gifting for it, I have the burden for it. And then just just know this, be prepared. It won't be easy. It's going to take some real courage. You're like, I see all that, but I don't really want to. Right. Courage necessitates, have you ever thought about this? Courage necessitates fear. So if you feel fear, you're you're not unusual. That's why we're to take courage, because you're afraid. If you weren't ever afraid, courage wouldn't be required. And so when you see those things, think to yourself, wait a minute, I might be in one of those mission moments. The big picture is so nebulous at times. It's so abstract. It's so big. Right, but it's broken into moments. The challenge is, for me, I'm just not usually looking. I'm too busy feeling like the victim, feeling sorry for myself, maybe even feeling sorry for someone else. And God's saying, I put you in this moment. Who knows? Maybe you were made, as Mordecai said to Esther, for such a time as this. I put you there. So, you know, we do the big so what. We always want you to just just think about it. Just, Just carry a simple thought home with you today. And our big so what today is this. The bigger mission is actually made of smaller moments. Just remember that. Don't get lost in this. Don't get lost in that. It's usually smaller moments. Be looking for those. Be looking. Be aware. Be thinking. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your goodness, God. Thank you that you're the God who gives us courage. That you're the God who gives us courage. Thank you, Father, that on a regular basis you are putting us in position for a mission. Thank you that you're doing that. Thank you, Father God, that you are putting us in position. God, would you help us to just have eyes open when we leave here today? Because a mission moment could happen this afternoon, Father. Make us aware. Help us to look. Ask the question, God, are you putting me in one of those moments? And then, God, I pray that you give us courage. Remind us that you are always with us, that you are always there. You never leave us. Give us courage, God. Give us courage. God, give us courage this week. Make us mission-minded people. We pray all this in Jesus' name.